Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. This series features real conversations with real experts, real parents, and real educators, so families can get the real behind-the-scenes story on what's happening in education. Get the inside scoop on how to help your child become successful in and out of school. As parents, we know that your child can sometimes forget to share the notes from their backpack that tell you everything that's happening at their school. That's why we've launched this podcast just for you. Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Hello, everyone. (laughs) I am LaWanda Tony, Director of Communications at National PTA, and we are so excited to be here today. We're bringing you a very special episode of Notes from the Backpack. Helen, can you believe that we're here with such a big audience for the podcast? It is super exciting. (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm Helen Westmoreland, your Notes from the Backpack co-host and National PTA's Director of Family Engagement. As Wanda said, tonight is an extra special episode because we are here in Alexandria, Virginia, recording with a live audience at National PTA's Legislative Conference. Today, hundreds of PTA leaders took to the Hill to ask their congressional representatives to take action for our kids. And we are so thrilled to be having you as part of this conversation. I know, usually it's Helen, me, two mics, headphones, and a small room. A tiny room. So (laughs) this is super exciting. And so we're super happy to have our special guest sitting with us today, Rodney Robinson. Thank you. Rodney hails from Richmond, Virginia, and is the 2019 National Teacher of the Year. Rodney is a 19-year teaching veteran who currently teaches at Virgie Benford Education Center, a school inside a Richmond juvenile detention center. As an educator, Rodney uses a whole child approach to education to help students who are most vulnerable. His passion about making sure his students, many of whom are both academically and personally struggling, get back on track so that they can graduate. Rodney is a proud member of the Richmond, Virginia, and National Education Association and is a vocal and dedicated union activist. Outside of the classroom, he has been published three times by Yale University and has received numerous awards for his accomplishments. Most notably, the REB Award for Teaching Excellence. He has also worked with the Pulitzer Award-winning author, James Foreman, on developing curriculum units on race, class, and punishment as a part of the Yale's Teachers Institute. Please welcome Rodney Robinson. So, Rodney, we are so honored to have you here with us today to get an inside look of what it's really like to be a teacher and what our teachers need to help our kids thrive. So let's start off with just a little bit about you. What made you decide to be a teacher? And more so, what made you decide to teach in probably one of the hardest schools in the country? Well, I became a teacher just to honor my mother. She wanted to become a teacher, but she never got a chance to due to segregation and poverty growing up in rural Virginia. However, she didn't let that stop her. She ran an in-home daycare and 
she would say that it's the job of the older generation to take care of the young folks. And she would always tell me that. And she would tell everybody in the neighborhood, just if you need child cares, drop your kid off, bring something to eat, pick them up at five in the evening. And so it was just really weird growing up because I would go to sleep at night in the bed by myself and I would wake up in the morning, there'd be three more kids in the bed. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm wondering what happened, but you know, that was just my mom. She just had an open door policy. Anybody in the neighborhood, whether you could afford it or not, just drop your kids off and she would take care of them. Of course, she had five kids of her own, so we were always there. She would always say, what's 10 when you have five here already? Wow. (laughs) But it was just those lessons she taught me and just watching her handle every kid in the neighborhood. Everybody thought they were her favorite, even though I knew I was, you know. (laughs) Uh um, And then when everybody went home, she taught me those lessons because I had a sister with cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. And my mother would often say, I don't love you any more or less than your sister. She just requires more of my time. And so just watching those lessons growing up really put the spirit of wanting to be a teacher in me. And then when I was in ninth grade, she decided she was going to go back to school and get her GED. And so I was in the back of the classroom because I had just finished football or band practice and I'm doing my homework. She's in the front of the classroom helping her classmates doing her work. And so she just modeled that behavior. And so just seeing that inspired me to want to become a teacher. And so that's why I decided to become a teacher. And once I started teaching, I always felt I was needed in schools with high needs because I knew what teachers, how they made a difference in my life. And so I always wanted to work in schools that were not considered your best of the best schools, but to me, they're the best schools I've ever been at. And so I started off my first year in Brown Middle School in Richmond, Virginia, and if anybody in here works in middle schoolers, there's a special place in heaven for you. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh-huh. And then I moved on to George Worth High School. And then for 12 years, I taught at Armstrong High School. Yeah. Armstrong High School is one of those schools that's been racially, economically segregated from the rest of the city for 100 plus years. All the issues you think of when you think of an inner city school. However, it was the best 12 years of my life. working in that community and diving in, getting to know the people, teaching entire families. Like literally five siblings would come through my classroom. And so I really got ingrained in that community. And it was really just the best time. People often say that school is so terrible. To me, it was the best school in the nation because of the love in that school. When you come from such a harsh tradition, everything is hard. But also, if you're a part of that community, the love is hard. And so they really love you. They really embrace you. But after 12 years of working in that environment, I started to suffer symptoms of burnout. Mm. And I didn't want to leave education and I didn't want to leave a high need school. And so 2015, I got a call from my current principal. She's a friend of mine. We've known each other for almost 20 years. And she called me and said, hey, do you know a teacher who wants to come down and work at the detention center? And I was like, well, I don't know. They say, I'm playing. I just want you. She's like, <laughs> I'm calling because I want you to come oh, down here that. to the detention center. And so I was like, mm, I'm not sure, especially because I'm claustrophobic. Mm. So the idea of going behind in the jail with locked doors yeah, did yeah. not sit well with me. But then, of course, in 2015, that's when the U.S. Department of Education, they released a report. And that report said that Virginia led the nation in referring students to the juvenile detention mm. centers. And so to me, that was sort of a sign. That was like, I could read books, I could talk about it, read reports, but what's better than field experience? 
And so I moved down to the detention center to work with the students so that I could see their stories and start to develop programs Hmm. that would keep students out of jail. And so that's how I ended up at the juvenile detention center. And it's clearly the best decision I've ever made because it's given me a platform to advocate for my students and what they need on a national level. That's so wonderful. You remind me in season one of our podcast, we interviewed the former secretary of education, John King, and he talked a lot about the value of second chances and that he wouldn't be where he was today if it wasn't for a teacher who gave him a second chance. How important is that for you in your role, especially teaching at a juvenile detention center? Well, we're America. America is really a country of second chances. And so I often tell my kids, you have a second chance. The best way to take advantage of that is a quality education. Mm -hmm. And it's my job to put you on the path to developing that second chance because everybody do me a favor for a moment. I just want you to close your eyes for a second. All right. Think back to the worst thing you did when you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. I'll give a little more time because some of y'all got to think a little further than others. You know? <laughs> All right. Now think about it. Imagine if everyone knew what you did. Mm-hmm. Imagine if your parents, guardians, your teachers, everybody knew what you did and judged you for it. Would you still be where you are today? And so that's my kids' reality. They've made mistakes and they're paying for them, but I tell them something, not to get too religious, but I tell them God don't make no mistakes. You're here for a reason. And so sometimes you have to sit yourself down in order to move forward. So this is your time to sit down, reset, refocus, and rededicate your life to doing the positive things. Mm. So that's really my whole approach to the kids. And when I show them that I care about them and that I want them to succeed, it really encourages them to do their best. Yeah. Could you talk more about that? Because I think something every parent can relate to, well, now every person in this room who's closed their eyes personally too, (laughs) is sometimes you make some bad decisions or you see your child or a child struggling and you are like, you need to make some better decisions. Can you talk about how you do that in the classroom, how you help kids kind of open up and see those second chances? Well, the reality is my kids, the decisions they make are survival decisions. Mm -hmm. Society has often failed them in a number of ways. And so the decisions that they make are decisions that they need to survive in that immediate moment. Mm -hmm. So what we do is, number one, we try to alleviate whatever situation led to the problem and then try to teach them more conflict resolution skills, teach them how to better advocate for themselves. That's one of my big components of education is to teach students how to advocate for what they need, how to go about Mm -hmm. the proper way of getting what you need. Something as simple as our kids. Who has teenagers in this room? Exactly. How many times a day do kids eat, teenagers eat? All day, right? <laughs> well, something to something like, so imagine if you're a teenager and you only eat at 5.30, 12 o'clock, and 5.30. So you're trying to have class at about 9 o'clock. Kids aren't focused because they're hungry. They're mm-hmm. not paying attention. And so they want a snack. So we said, you can get the snacks. And so they had to write letters. They had to meet with the mayors, city officials, state officials federal officials, it's a six-month process, but in the end, they got the snacks. But more importantly, it taught them a lesson on self-advocacy. And that was really the point of it, to teach them how to say, hey, I need help. Hey, this is the process in which to go about getting that help. And so that's really a big core component of our school is to teach the students how to be better advocates for themselves and what they need so they don't resort to bad decisions to get what they need. Mm -hmm. PTA can definitely get behind that. 
<laughs> All these advocates in this room. Right. Now we're going to take a quick break for a message from our national PTA president, Leslie Boggs. Hi, I'm Leslie Boggs, president of National PTA. We hope you're enjoying Notes from the Backpack. All of our efforts are supported by listeners just like you. Our goal is to help every family support their child's success. Donate to our mission today at pta.org slash student success. Let's transition a little bit and talk about families. What can they do to help the education situation? Well, the families are the education system. One thing I often say is not the job of the teacher to educate the child. It's the job of the teachers along with the parents, the family, business, community leaders, state, local, government officials. Everybody has to come to the table and make decisions that's best for the child. And so it's often it's really important for schools to have that open relationship Mm -hmm. with parents, with families. And that's one reason I often attribute our success at our school is because we have an open door policy for families. Mm -hmm. And it's weird that a child has to come to jail before the first time they get a principal or administrator or a teacher who calls with good news Mm -hmm. or positive things about their child. And so it's really important that you keep that open door and you view the parents as partners and not adversaries and educating their child because we don't know the kids. We just know a part of the kids. The parents and the families, you're the one who truly, truly knows that kid. You're the one who can advocate for what's best for your child. And so don't let any school or any teacher intimidate you out of what you know is best for your child. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important for schools to embrace that and have that open relationship Mm -hmm. with families. What do you think, Rodney, What are some of the things that you feel like over the years, having worked with families to advocate for their kids, that you either repeat over again or that you wish families knew from your perspective as a teacher? Know that you have the power. Don't be intimidated by the system. See, the problem is a lot of parents, especially the parents in the schools I've taught at, they've had bad experiences in school themselves. And so when they walk into that environment that anxiety, that intimidation, or everything that they've dealt with now comes out. So a lot of them tend to not come to that environment. We see parents all the time. They're so active in kids' lives in elementary and middle, but then when they get to high school, they tend to fall back. No, we need you there just as much in high school as you were there in elementary school. Because like I said, you know your child. I could talk all day about how I'm going to figure out how does this kid learn, but why do I need to do that when you're the parent and you're there. I can just call and ask you, hey, what works with this kid? Because you know as a parent. And as long as you have that open relationship, it works. And the key to building that relationship is community. As a teacher, you can't just come to school, teach, then go home. You have to ingrain yourself in the community. You have to have those relationships so that when you see a parent, the parent knows you. Your first communication with a parent should not be a negative communication. It should always be a positive open door so that when you come to them with something negative, that wall of defense isn't up because they know you. They're like, okay, I know that you care about this community. I've seen you out and about. So therefore, I know that you're making a responsible decision for my child and I'm going to help you get my child on track and we can correct what's going on or I'm going to advocate for what my child needs. Yeah. Both my parents were teachers in South Carolina, uh, middle school science teacher and a high school English teacher. And when I grew up, they were pillars of the community, like you said. They were ingrained in the community. Kids came to our 
house. They were there all the time, either asking for recommendations or getting extra help. Has that changed? Do you still consider yourself a pillar in the community? I would like to say I am. I'm really ingrained into my community. One thing I often do when the students come to the detention center, I immediately ask them, what neighborhood are you from? And by getting to that neighborhood, I'm going to find out within six questions someone that you and I both know. So like, what's that, six degrees of yeah, the Kevin Bacon, with Kevin yes. Bacon, that game? <laughs> and so I play that with my kids, and we're going to find somebody that we both know. Yeah. And so I tell the kids all the time, check my street cred. I mean, I've been in this neighborhood <laughs> for a while working with people. If I haven't taught your brother, I guarantee I've taught a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, or someone. And that's because I've been ingrained in that Richmond community, more specifically East End Richmond community, mm. for the past 20 years. That's great. I want to hear a little bit about some of the difference you're making in your kids' lives. Because I think for many folks in the general public, obviously not in this room or the folks listening, it's easy to say, those kids, right? Those kids are in trouble. And that second chance is hard to come by. Could you give us a few stories of a couple of your kids that have really touched you and where you feel like you've been able to make a difference? Well, I don't believe in the those kids yeah. philosophy. It's our kids, my yeah. kids. You know? Uh, it's kind of funny. It's before I got married some years ago. I was on a date and the lady asked me, how many kids do you have? I said, about 1,500. And she's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know? But I'm like, I'm a teacher. Every, yeah. Every, yeah. every student in that building is my kid. There's no such mm-hmm. thing. Even if you're not in my class, you're my kid, and yeah. I'm going to take care of you. And so we've had quite a few kids going to do some amazing things. We have kids who have left us and gone on to join youth advocacy networks. They've given TED Talks. They pretty much have caused the state of Virginia to shut down a facility. They caused the state of Virginia to not build a new facility and then reinvest that money into the diversion programs. <laughs> One of the things we really want to do is we want to create a civic experience, treat our children as Americans and show them what Americans really can do. And so we have a really good civics program and community outreach program. We have several kids that have left us and have joined the military because we stress that type of civic engagement. And sometimes I tell them, sometimes you need a little different type of discipline or a new environment if you want to actually change. It's hard to change when you're around the same people you've been around your entire life. One thing we do at our school is we have a jobs program. If we have a kid that graduates and we know they're getting a release date, we try to get them as much industry certification as we can. And we even go as far as to place them in the job so that when they leave us, they actually are employed and they can make a responsible living. Because I remember a couple weeks ago, I was talking to a former student. He worked in a grocery store now and hadn't seen him in the jail, you know, come back. And I said, hey, you good, man? How you doing? You know? I was like, what made a difference? So many other people come back. Why didn't you come back? He's like, I got a job. I learned how to make legal money, you know, for the first time (laughs) in my life, you know. But something that simple, that goes back to that point where I was saying a lot of our kids' crimes are crimes of survival. I stole this because I was hungry and I needed to eat. I carried a gun because I needed protection for the situations I was in. So if we can help them alleviate those situations, we can really reduce the recidivism rate on a lot of our kids Mm -hmm. and more importantly, We can put them on a path to productivity in life. And I mean, we've had a lot of success, but the reality is the recidivism rate is still too high. Mm. It's still 50%. So we really have a lot more work to do. And so even though we boast in Virginia, we have the lowest 
recidivism rate, to me, is not low enough. Our recidivism rate should be zero. And so we're not going to stop working until we get that number closer to zero. That's good. Let's talk a little bit about students being able to see representation in their schools, black males seeing black males as teachers and other figures. We know that the majority of kids in public schools are children of color. However, only 18% of teachers are teachers of color and only 2% are African-American men. Mm -hmm. Have you witnessed how important your presence as a teacher is to other African-American male students? And can you share some of your stories? (laughs) It's weird in America because we look at all these reports about the achievement gap, graduation Mm -hmm. gap, all these gaps. But to me, the report that's the most important one was that report by Dr. Lindsay and their colleagues at John Hopkins Mm -hmm. that says whenever students get a teacher of color in elementary or middle school, they're 39% less likely to drop out and 19% more likely to go to college. To me, that should be the number one report. We can talk about all the things we can do to close the achievement gap and all these special programs, but reality is it's right there in your face. If you get teachers of color in the classroom to help students of color, you will close that gap. And it's not just teachers of color to benefit students of color. White kids benefit from it as well. Because imagine how less racist our society would be if every child had a teacher of color in front of them. You know, you can see the humanity. You can get to know that person. And so it makes you a better person because you've had that opportunity. And it's weird because I remember we had our class reunion a couple years ago. And my senior year, I remember our school hired a black assistant principal because they lost a discrimination suit, let's be honest. So as we all were sitting around at the reunion and we were talking about the reunion and all, nobody knew the name of our white principal. We literally had to look it up in the yearbook, but everybody knew Dr. Lewis. You know, black and white, because Dr. Lewis, he was that person, that figure for every student in that building. And so that's been my platform the entire year is that we need more teachers of color in the classroom, specifically male teachers of color, because it makes a difference, especially with young black boys, because society. (laughs) With young black and brown boys and girls, society tells them and media tells them all the negative things they're supposed to be shows them all the negative stereotypes of who they are, well, I can counteract that. I'm in front of you every day as a college graduate with two degrees who's in a professional career who's showing you all the people who look like you who've done it as well. And so we're trying to counter that narrative. We're trying to just push them to be whatever they want. We need to get them out of that box of thinking that they're only supposed to be what the media tells them to be. You can have dreams. I mean, we have one student in jail for stealing dogs. That's what he did. He stole dogs. And dogs are big business, if you really know, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I remember he got connected with the SPCA. And so because he got joked by the other kids, like, you want to be a dog whisperer? You know, they were just making fun <laughs> of him and all that. But the reality is that kid got out and he started his own dog care, dog grooming, dog walking mm, business. Wow. Thanks to gentrification, he makes more money than I do as a teacher. <laughs> you know? And so, and that's what it's all about. If a kid comes to you as a dream, we're not going to let your skin color dictate your dream. Mm. You know, we're going to let you be whatever you want to be. I want to pick up on this thread around 
equity and what does that really mean when we play it out in our school system? Because many folks here today, and I know you have also advocated not just for more school funding, but for more equitable school funding. Could you tell our listeners and folks in the room, what does that mean to you and why is that important? Well, it's really important because we know not all kids start at the same point in life. Some kids need more, some kids need less. And the reality is if everybody's getting the same amount, well, that kid who needs more is still being shortchanged. Mm. And so it's really important to understand. And I remember when I won National Teacher of the Year, Dr. James Lane, who's our state superintendent in the state of Virginia, he took me on a tour of Virginia. And he just wanted to show me some of the inequities of Virginia. Mm. And so it was really unique to see that and see the disparities in our state. And so there was one county where the kids were brand new school. They were using STEM bots to plant agriculture. Then we go to the next county over and they don't even have textbooks Mm. or high speed Internet. How do we expect those kids to compete against each other when these kids in this one county has been given such an advantage? And so we really need to understand that we need to give the resources where it's needed. And we can't give everybody an equal share. And one of the things that frustrates me as I talk about equity as I go around the nation and a lot of these people say, oh, we have this great equity program. We can introduce this new equity program. Equity is not a program. (laughs) (laughs) Equity is seeing a decision that needs to be made to give a student a fair shot in making that decision. No program is going to dictate that because programs are supposed to be universal. Equity is a word that's not universal. Equity means I see what needs to be done, and I'm going to make that decision right here, right now, regardless of the consequences. And so a lot of our politicians need to understand that. One of your other passions is mental health, right? Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the challenges that you see in mental health and education. One thing starts with the students. Our students are coming to us with all kinds of trauma and mental health, and I'm really glad to see that the foundation is starting a new thing to bring light to suicide awareness. But we really need a trauma-informed approach to our schools because I tell people all the time, it is so much harder being a kid today than it was when we were younger. You know, when you're a kid today, you're just slammed with information 24-7 before you're old enough to even understand it. And then also you're getting bullied 24-7. When we were growing up, let's say if there was a bullying case at school, well, we went home, you know. (laughs) I didn't get bullied at home. If you don't count my older brothers, I didn't get bullied (laughs) bullied at home. But our kids don't have that luxury today. They're constantly going on online, social media. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard. Our kids come to us with a number of mental health issues, and schools aren't doing a good job of dealing with it. One of my big things is we need to eliminate school resource officers and put mental health workers in our school. Because you have a school resource officer and the kid comes to school and gets into a fight, well, he breaks up the fight, but he didn't get to the root cause of that anger and that issue that led to the fight. And so you've only delayed another fight in that situation. Whereas... If you have a mental health worker, they can pull the kids together and get to the root cause of what is going on and teach them some conflict resolution skills, teach them how to deal with their anger, their emotions. And so it's really important that schools get more mental health workers into the school, not just for the students, but let's be honest, for the teachers. We're taking a lot of secondary trauma with us 
because we're taking on so many of our kids' problems and we're dealing with so many situations in addition to having to teach a classroom full of kids. And so a lot of the burnout that teachers are experiencing right now is strictly due to the fact that they don't have an outlet for their mental health. Mm. And it's really time that we take a look at that. I know my friend Sydney Clark Jensen, she has a TED Talk about teachers and mental health. I mean, it blew up. It got like 10 million views in a month because it resonated with so many teachers the fact that we need to start taking care of ourselves. Yeah. And I remember when um, I realized I needed to do something for myself, I was talking to um, my wife, and she was telling me about a story on the news. She's like, hey, did you see about that four-year-old kid that got shot on Southside? And my response was, yeah, that happens. That's not a normal response. Mm. That response made me question what I was going through because I had been absorbing so much of my kids' trauma that I had become mm. jaded toward the world. And so that was my moment where I said, like, okay, I need to go talk to somebody because I can't help anybody if that is my view of the world, that it's okay that four-year-olds get shot and that's just the world we live in. Right. And so it really made me reevaluate myself. And so I tell kids now, especially those in college, when you're looking at jobs, because let's be honest, it's a teacher shortage. You should have your pick of jobs. Make sure you pick a job that has a good mental health plan because you're going to need it. You have to take care of yourself. You can't be there for the students, if you're less than 25% yourself. Yeah, it makes sense. Before I turn to Wanda to help us close out, I think parents and teachers are such natural allies. What can parents do more of to appreciate teachers like you, Rodney? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's weird because I'm not one to talk about myself. I'm kind of a humble guy, and it's like, yeah. I'm good. But I see a lot of teachers, especially young teachers, they're overwhelmed and they're overburdened. And so a lot of times, you know, if there's an issue with parents, they come to the school, guns are blazing, wanting to solve this issue immediately, not understanding that, wait a minute, it's not that the teacher doesn't know what they're doing. They just need help. Now, I understand why you got guns are blazing because nobody's going to bother your little baby boy, your little baby girl. Now, I get that. And I truly understand that. But really, it takes a little more understanding, a little more patience. And we really need that with our students, with our teachers, even teachers with parents. We need a little more understanding, a little more patience because that's their baby, you know what I mean? Right. So really, the whole thing is about having open lines of communications. Yeah. Sometimes invite a teacher over to dinner. Invite a teacher out to dinner. Just get to know them where it's not in a school setting. Maybe it's not in a home setting, but in a neutral environment where you can just relax, get to know the teacher, and actually talk about things. You will find that once you remove the power dynamic in most relationships, you will have an open conversation and you can get a lot of things done. So just invite them, say, hey, family's going out to dinner. Would you mind joining us for dinner? I'm going to try that. Because one thing, teachers, I mean, we broke. We need free meals, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that. You know? And even if it's not one teacher, invite two teachers so that they feel more comfortable. Yeah. But yeah. just getting that neutral environment and just start talking and getting to know each other and building that relationship. And then things can only go up from there once you establish a ground-level relationship. Yeah. yeah, Rodney, we could sit here and talk to you all night long. <laughs> I know we talked about a lot. What are your social media handles and where can listeners and our audience go to learn more about you and your work? Rod Robinson, RVA. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I try to keep it simple. Then there's RodRobinsonRVA.com. That's my website where, you know, I got a couple articles, a couple speeches, different things. There's also links to reach out to me as well. And so 
it's just really about having those open lines of communication. And so if you want to know more about me, you can just read that. Or you can contact Council of Chief State Schools Officers. Got that right on the first time. (laughs) Or or ccsso.org, and they have a bunch of information about me, about my passion. So just reach out. Great. Good. Ronnie, we are thankful to you. We are also thankful for our live audience here tonight. Thank you guys for participating. So be sure to stay in the know by subscribing to our podcasts and by visiting Notes from the Backpack. Also use the hashtag Backpack Notes to continue the conversation. For those of you in the audience live today and those listening, we hope you will share and review today's episode on your favorite listening platform. Thanks for listening, and please tune in next time. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So good. Thank you for tuning in to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at National PTA and online at pta.org forward slash backpack notes.